Do you have kids in your life? Whether you're a parent, teacher, aunt, uncle, grandparent, babysitter, we all know that keeping kids calm and entertained can be difficult. That's why I want to introduce to you the newest show by Slumber Studios. It's called Snuggle, and it features calming stories for kids of all ages. Whether it's for bedtime, nap time, or just for fun, Snuggle offers a cozy world of imagination and adventure. You'll find original stories where we swim with mermaids, visit old toy stores, and try out magical wands. And you'll hear our modernized renditions of classic tales like Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland. Just search Snuggle in your podcast player and be sure to follow the show so that it's easy to find next time the kids want a good story to snuggle up with. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Part 2, Chapters 5 and 6. In the previous chapters, Captain Nemo was about to navigate the Nautilus through a secret submarine tunnel into the Mediterranean Sea. In the following chapters, our adventurers encounter a huge dugong and proceed to capture it. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 5 The Arabian Tunnel That same evening, in 21 degrees 30 feet north latitude, the Nautilus floated on the surface of the sea, approaching the Arabian coast. I saw Djedda, the most important counting house of Egypt, Syria, Turkey and India. I distinguished clearly enough its buildings, the vessels anchored at the quays, and those whose draught of water obliged them to anchor in the roads. The sun, rather low on the horizon, struck full on the houses of the town, bringing out their whiteness. Outside some wooden cabins, and some made of reeds, 
showed the quarter inhabited by the Beduins. Soon the Jeddah was shut out from view by the shadows of night, and the Nautilus found herself under water slightly phosphorescent. The next day, the 10th of February, we sighted several ships running to windward. The Nautilus returned to its submarine navigation, but at noon, when her bearings were taken, the sea being deserted, she rose again to her waterline. Accompanied by Ned and Concier, I seated myself on the platform. The coast on the eastern side looked like a mass faintly printed upon a damp fog. We were leaning on the sides of the pinnace, talking of one thing and another, when Ned Land, stretching out his hand towards a spot on the sea, said, Do you see anything there, sir? No, Ned, I replied, but I've not your eyes, you know. Look well, said Ned, there, on the starboard beam, about the height of the lantern. Do you not see a mass which seems to move? Certainly, said I, after close attention. I see something like a long black body on the top of the water. And certainly, before long, the black object was not more than a mile from us. It looked like a great sandbank deposited in the open sea. It was a gigantic dugong. Ned Land looked eagerly. His eyes shone with covetousness at the sight of the animal. His hand seemed ready to harpoon it. One would have thought he was awaiting the moment to throw himself into the sea and attack it in its element. At this instant, Captain Nemo appeared on the platform. He saw the dugong, understood the Canadian's attitude, and addressing him, said, If you will de harpoon just now, Master Land, would it not burn your hand? Just so, sir. And you would not be sorry to go back for one day to your trade of a fisherman and to add this cetacean to the list of those you have already killed? I should not, sir. Well, you can try. Thank you, sir, said Ned Land, his eyes flaming. Only, continued the captain, I advise you, for your own sake, 
Not to miss the creature. Is the dugong dangerous to attack? I asked, in spite of the Canadian's shrug of the shoulders. Yes, replied the captain. Sometimes the animal turns upon its assailants and overturns their boat. But for Master Land, this danger is not to be feared. His eye is prompt. His arm is sure. At this moment, seven men of the crew, mute and immovable as ever, mounted the platform. One carried a harpoon and a line similar to those employed in catching whales. The pinnace was lifted from the bridge, pulled from its socket, and let down into the sea. Six oarsmen took their seats, and the coxswain went to the tiller. Ned, Concier, and I went to the back of the boat. You're not coming, Captain? I asked. No, sir, but I wish you good sport. The boat put off, and lifted by the six rows, drew rapidly towards the dugong, which floated about two miles from the Nautilus. Arrived some cable's length from the cetacean, the speed slackened, and the oars dipped noiselessly into the quiet waters. Ned Land, harpoon in hand, stood in the forepart of the boat. The harpoon used for striking the whale is generally attached to a very long cord which runs out rapidly as the wounded creature draws it after him. But here, the cord was not more than ten fathoms long, and the extremity was attached to a small barrel, which, by floating, was to show the course the dugong took under the water. I stood and carefully watched the Canadian's adversary. This dugong, which also bears the name of the Halicor, closely resembles the manatee, its oblong body terminated in a lengthened tail, and its lateral fins in perfect fingers. Its difference from the manatee consisted in its upper jaw, which was armed with two long and pointed teeth, which formed on each side diverging tusks. This dugong which Ned Land was preparing to attack was of a colossal dimension. It was more than seven yards long. It did not move and seemed to be sleeping on the waves, which circumstance made it easier to capture. The boat approached within six yards of the animal. The oars rested on the rowlocks. I half rose, 
Ned Land, his body thrown a little back, brandished the harpoon in his experienced hand. Suddenly, a hissing noise was heard, and the dugong disappeared. The harpoon, although thrown with great force, had apparently only struck the water. Curse it, exclaimed the Canadian furiously. I have missed it. No, said I. The creature is wounded. Look at the blood. But your weapon has not struck its body. My harpoon. My harpoon, cried Ned Land. The sailors rode on, and the coxswain made for the floating barrel. The harpoon regained. We followed in pursuit of the animal. The latter came now and then to the surface to breathe. Its wound had weakened it, for it shot onwards with great rapidity. The boat, rowed by strong arms, flew on its tracks. Several times it approached within some few yards and the Canadian was ready to strike. But the dugong made off with a sudden plunge, and it was impossible to reach it. Imagine the passion which excited impatient Ned Land. He hurled at the unfortunate creature the most energetic expletives in the English tongue. For my part, I was only vexed to see the dugong escape all our attacks. We pursued it without relaxation for an hour, and I began to think it would prove difficult to capture, when the animal, possessed with the perverse idea of vengeance of which he had cause to repent, turned upon the pinnace and assailed us in its turn. This maneuver did not escape the Canadian. Look out, he cried. The coxswain said some words in his outlandish tongue, doubtless warning the men to keep on their guard. The dugong came within twenty feet of the boat stopped, sniffed the air briskly with its large nostrils, not pierced at the extremity, but in the upper part of its muzzle. Then, taking a spring, he threw himself upon us. The pinnace could not avoid the shock, and half upset, shipped at least two tons of water which had to be emptied, but thanks to the coxswain, we caught it sideways, not full front, so we were not quite overturned. While Ned Land, clinging to the bows, belaboured the gigantic animal with blows from his harpoon, 
the creature's teeth were buried in the gunwale, and it lifted the whole thing out of the water, as a lion does a roebuck. We were upset over one another, and I know not how the adventure would have ended if the Canadian, still enraged with the beast, had not struck it to its heart. I heard its teeth grind on the iron plate, and the dugong disappeared, carrying the harpoon with him. But the barrel soon returned to the surface, and shortly after, the body of the animal turned on its back. The boat came up with it, took it in tow, and made straight for the Nautilus. It required tackle of enormous strength to hoist the dugong onto the platform. It weighed 10,000 pounds. The next day, the 11th of February, the larder of the Nautilus was enriched by some more delicate game. A flight of sea swallows rested on the Nautilus. It was a species of the Sterna Nilotica, particular to Egypt. Its beak is black, head grey and pointed, the eye surrounded by white spots, the back, wings and tail of a greyish colour, the belly and throat white and the claws red. They also took some dozen of Nile ducks, a wild bird of high flavour, its throat and upper part of the head white with black spots. About five o'clock in the evening, we sighted to the north the Cape of Raz Mohammed, this cape forms the extremity of Arabia Petraea. Comprised between the Gulf of Suez and the Gulf of Aqaba. The Nautilus penetrated into the Straits of Jabal, which leads to the Gulf of Suez. I distinctly saw a high mountain towering between the two gulfs of Ras Muhammad. It was Mount Horeb, that sinia at the top of which Moses saw God face to face. At six o'clock, the Nautilus, sometimes floating, sometimes immersed, passed some distance from Tor, situated at the end of the bay, the waters of which seemed tinted with red an observation already made by Captain Nemo. Then night fell in the midst of a heavy silence, sometimes broken by the cries of the pelican and other night birds, and the noise of the waves breaking upon the shore, chafing against the rocks, or the panting of some far-off steamer beating the waters of the gulf with its noisy paddles. 
from eight to nine o'clock. The Nautilus remained some fathoms under the water. According to my calculation, we must have been very near Suez. Through the panel of the saloon, I saw the bottom of the rocks brilliantly lit up by our electric lamp. We seemed to be leaving the streets behind us more and more. At a quarter past nine, the vessel having returned to the surface, I mounted the platform. Most impatient to pass through Captain Nemo's tunnel, I could not stay in one place, so came to breathe the fresh night air. Soon, in the shadow, I saw a pale light, half discolored by the fog, shining about a mile from us. A floating lighthouse, said someone near me. I turned and saw the captain. It is the floating light of Suez, he continued. It will not be long before we gain the entrance of the tunnel. The entrance cannot be easy. No, sir. For that reason, I am accustomed to go into the steersman's cage and myself direct our course. And now, if you will go down, Monsieur Aranax, the Nautilus is going under the waves and will not return to the surface until we have passed through the Arabian Tunnel. Captain Nemo led me towards the central staircase. Halfway down, he opened a door, traversed the upper deck, and landed in the pilot's cage, which it may be remembered rose at the extremity of the platform. It was a cabin measuring six feet square, very much like that occupied by the pilot on the steamboats of the Mississippi or Hudson. In the midst worked a wheel, placed vertically and caught to the tiller rope, which ran to the back of the Nautilus. Four light ports with lenticular glasses let in a groove in the partition of the cabin, allowed the man at the wheel to see in all directions. This cabin was dark, but soon my eyes accustomed themselves to the obscurity, and I perceived the pilot, a strong man, with his hands resting on the spokes of the wheel. Outside, the sea appeared vividly, lit up by the lantern, which shed its rays from the back of the cabin to the outer extremity of the platform. No, said Captain Nemo, let us try to make our passage. Electric wires connected the pilot's cage with the machinery room, and from there, the captain could communicate simultaneously to his Nautilus the direction and the speed. He pressed a metal knob 
and at once the speed of the screw diminished. I looked in silence at the high straight wall we were running by at this moment, the immovable base of a massive sandy coast. We followed it thus for an hour, only some few yards off. Captain Nemo did not take his eyes from the knob, suspended by its two concentric circles in the cabin. At a simple gesture, the pilot modified the course of the Nautilus every instant. I had placed myself at the port scuttle and saw some magnificent substructures of coral, zoophytes, seaweed, and fucus agitating their enormous claws which stretched out from the fissures of the rock. At a quarter past ten, the captain himself took the helm. A large gallery black and deep, opened before us. The Nautilus went boldly into it. A strange roaring was heard round its sides. It was the waters of the Red Sea, which the incline of the tunnel precipitated violently towards the Mediterranean. The Nautilus went with the torrent rapid as an arrow, in spite of the efforts of the machinery, which, in order to offer more effective resistance, beat the waves with reversed screw. On the walls of the narrow passage, I could see nothing but brilliant rays, straight lines, furrows of fire, traced by the great speed under the brilliant electric light. My heart beat fast. At thirty-five minutes past ten, Captain Nemo quitted the helm and, turning to me, said, See Mediterranean. In less than twenty minutes, the Nautilus, carried along by the torrent, had passed through the Isthmus of Suez. Chapter 6 The Grecian Archipelago The next day, the 12th of February, at the dawn of the day, the Nautilus rose to the surface. I hastened onto the platform. Three miles to the south, the dim outline of Pelisium was to be seen. A torrent had carried us from one sea to another. About seven o'clock, Ned and Concier joined me. Well, Sir Naturalist, said the Canadian in a slightly jovial tone. And the Mediterranean. We are floating on its surface, friend Ned. What? 
said Concier. This very night? Yes, this very night. In a few minutes, we have passed this impassable isthmus. I do not believe it, replied the Canadian. Then you are wrong, Masterland, I continued. This low coast which rounds off to the south is the Egyptian coast. And you who have such good eyes, Ned, you can see the jetty of Port Said stretching into the sea. The Canadian looked attentively. Certainly you are right, sir. And your captain is a first-rate man. We are in the Mediterranean. Good. Now, if you please, let us talk of our own little affair, but so that no one hears us. I saw what the Canadian wanted, and, in any case, I thought it better to let him talk, as he wished it, so we all three went and sat down near the lantern where we were less exposed to the spray of the blades. Now, Ned, we listen. What have you to tell us? What I have to tell you is very simple. We are in Europe, and before Captain Nemo's caprices drag us once more to the bottom of the polar seas, or lead us into Oceania, I asked to leave the Nautilus. I wished in no way to shackle the liberty of my companions, but I certainly felt no desire to leave Captain Nemo. Thanks to him, and thanks to his apparatus, I was each day nearer the completion of my submarine studies, and I was rewriting my book of submarine depth in its very element. Should I ever again have such an opportunity of observing the wonders of the ocean? No, certainly not, and I could not bring myself to the idea of abandoning the Nautilus before the cycle of investigation was accomplished. Friend Ned, answer me frankly. Are you tired of being on board? Are you sorry that destiny has thrown us into Captain Nemo's hands? The Canadian remained some moments without answering. Then, crossing his arms, he said, Frankly, I do not regret this journey under the sea. I shall be glad to have made it, but now that it is made, let us have done with it. That is my idea. It will come to an end, Ned. Where and when? Where, I do not know. When, I cannot say, or rather, 
I suppose it will end when these seas have nothing more to teach us. And what do you hope for? demanded the Canadian. That circumstances may occur as well six months hence as now, by which we may and ought to profit. Oh, said Netland, and where shall we be in six months, if you please, Sir Naturalist? Perhaps in China? You know the Nautilus is a rapid traveller. It goes through water as swallows through the air, or as an express on the land. It does not fear frequented seas. Who can say that it may not beat the coasts of France, England, or America, on which flight may be attempted as advantageously as here? Monsieur Aranax, replied the Canadian, your arguments are rotten at the foundation. You speak in the future. We shall be there. We shall be here. I speak in the present. We are here, and we must profit by it. Ned Land's logic pressed me hard, and I felt myself beaten on the ground. I knew not what argument would now tell in my favour. Sir, continued Ned, let us suppose an impossibility. If Captain Nemo should this day offer you your liberty, would you accept it? I do not know, I answered. And if, he added, the offer made you this day was never to be renewed, would you accept it? Friend Ned, this is my answer. Your reasoning is against me. We must not rely on Captain Nemo's goodwill. Common prudence forbids him to set us at liberty. On the other side, prudence bids us profit by the first opportunity to leave the Nautilus. Well, Monsieur Aranax, that is wisely said. Only one observation, just one. The occasion must be serious, and our first attempt must succeed. If it fails, we shall never find another, and Captain Nemo will never forgive us. All that is true, replied the Canadian, but your observation applies equally to all attempts at flight, whether in two years' time or in two days. But the question is still this. If a favorable opportunity presents itself, 
it must be seized. Agreed. And now, Ned, will you tell me what you mean by a favorable opportunity? It will be that which, on a dark night, will bring the Nautilus at a short distance from some European coast. And you will try and save yourself by swimming. Yes, if we were near enough to the bank, and if the vessel was floating at the time. Not if the bank was far away and the boat was under the water. And in that case? And in that case, I should seek to make myself master of the pinnace. I know how it works. We must get inside, and the bolts once drawn, we shall come to the surface of the water, without even the pilot, who is in the bows, perceiving our flight. Well, Ned, watch for the opportunity, but do not forget that a hitch will ruin us. I will not forget, sir. And now, Ned, would you like to know what I think of your project? Certainly, Monsieur Arnax. Well, I think... I do not say I hope. I think that this favorable opportunity will never present itself. Why not? Because Captain Nemo cannot hide from himself that we have not given up all hope of regaining our liberty, and he will be on his guard, above all, in the seas and in the sights of European coasts. We shall see, replied Ned Land, shaking his head determinedly. And now, Ned Land, I added, let us stop here. Not another word on the subject. The day that you are ready, come and let us know, and we will follow you. I rely entirely upon you. Thus ended a conversation which, at no very distant time, led to such grave results. I must say here that facts seemed to confirm my foresight to the Canadian's great despair. Did Captain Nemo distrust us in these frequented seas, or did he only wish to hide himself from the numerous vessels of all nations which ploughed the Mediterranean? I could not tell, but we were oftener between waters and far from the coast. Or, if the Nautilus did emerge, nothing was to be seen but the pilot's cage. And sometimes it went to great depths, for, between the Grecian archipelago 
and Asia Minor. We could not touch the bottom by more than a thousand fathoms. Thus, I only knew we were near the island of Carapathos, one of the Soprades, by Captain Nemo reciting these lines from Virgil. Est carpetio Neptuni gurgetti vates, carelius protuius. As he pointed to a spot on the planisphere. It was indeed the ancient abode of Proteus, the old shepherd of Neptune's flocks, now the island of Scarpanto, situated between Rhodes and Crete. I saw nothing but the granite base through the glass panels of the saloon. The next day, the 14th of February, I resolved to employ some hours in the study of fishes of the archipelago. But for some reason or other, the panels remained hermetically sealed. Upon taking the course of the Nautilus, I found that we were going towards Candia, the ancient isle of Crete. At the time I embarked on the Abraham Lincoln, the whole of this island had risen in insurrection against the despotism of the Turks. But how the insurgents had fared since that time, I was absolutely ignorant. And it was not Captain Nemo, deprived of all land communications, who could tell me. I made no allusion to this event when that night I found myself alone with him in the saloon. Besides, he seemed to be taciturn and preoccupied. Then, contrary to his custom, he ordered both panels to be opened, and, going from one to the other, observed the mass of waters attentively. To what end, I could not guess. So, on my side, I employed my time in studying the fish passing before my eyes. In the midst of the waters, a man appeared, a diver, carrying at his belt a leather purse. It was not a body abandoned to the waves. It was a living man, swimming with a strong hand, disappearing occasionally to take breath at the surface. I turned towards Captain Nemo, and in an agitated voice exclaimed, A man shipwrecked. He must be saved at any price. The captain did not answer me, but came and leaned against the panel. The man had approached, and, with his face flattened against the glass, was looking at us. To my great amazement, Captain Nemo signed to him. 
that either answered with his hand, mounted immediately to the surface of the water, and did not appear again. Do not be uncomfortable, said Captain Nemo. It is Nicholas of Cape Matapan, surnamed Pesca. He is well known in all Cycladies. A bold diver, water is his element, and he lives more in it than on land, going continually from one island to another, even as far as Crete. You know him, Captain? Why not, Monsieur Anax? Saying which, Captain Nemo went towards a piece of furniture standing near the left panel of the saloon. Near this piece of furniture, I saw a chest bound with iron, on the cover of which was a copper plate bearing the cipher of the Nautilus with its device. At that moment, the captain, without noticing my presence, opened the piece of furniture, a sort of strong box, which held a great many ingots. They were ingots of gold. From whence came this precious metal, which represented an enormous sum? Where did the captain gather this gold from? And what was he going to do with it? I did not say one word. I looked. Captain Nemo took the ingots one by one and arranged them methodically in the chest, which he filled entirely. I estimated the contents at more than 4,000 pounds weight of gold. That is to say, nearly 200,000 pounds. The chest was securely fastened, and the captain wrote an address on the lid, its characters which must have belonged to modern Greece. Four men appeared, and, not without some trouble, pushed the chest out of the saloon. Then I heard them hoisting it up the iron staircase by means of pulleys. At that moment, Captain Nemo turned to me. And you were saying, sir, said he. I was saying nothing, Captain. Then, sir, if you will allow me, I will wish you good night. Whereupon he turned and left the saloon. I returned to my room, much troubled, as one may believe. I vainly tried to sleep. I sought the connecting link between the apparition of the diver and the chest filled with gold. Soon, I felt by certain movements of pitching and tossing that the Nautilus was leaving the depths and returning to the surface. 
Then I heard steps upon the platform, and I knew they were unfastening the pinnace and launching it upon the waves. For one instant, it struck the side of the Nautilus, and then all noise ceased. Two hours after, the same noise, the same going and coming was renewed. The boat was hoisted on board, replaced in its socket, and the Nautilus again plunged under the waves. So these millions had been transported to their address. To what point of the continent? Who was Captain Nemo's correspondent? The next day, I related to Concier and the Canadian the events of the night, which had excited my curiosity to the highest degree. My companions were not less surprised than myself. But where does he take his millions to? asked Ned Land. To that, there was no possible answer. I returned to the saloon after having breakfast and set to work. Till five o'clock in the evening, I employed myself in arranging my notes, and that moment, ought I to attribute it to some peculiar idiosyncrasy, I felt so great a heat that I was obliged to take off my coat. It was strange, for we were under low latitudes, and even then the Nautilus, submerged as it was ought to experience no change of temperature. I looked at the manometer. It showed a depth of 60 feet, to which atmospheric heat could never attain. I continued my work, but the temperature rose to such a pitch as to be intolerable. Could there be a fire on board? I asked myself. I was leaving the saloon when Captain Nemo entered. He approached the thermometer, consulting it, and turning to me, said, 42 degrees. I have noticed it, Captain, I replied. If it gets much hotter, we cannot bear it. Oh, sir, it will not get better if we do not wish it. You can reduce it as you please, then. No, but I can go farther from the stove which produces it. It is outward, then. Certainly, we are floating in a current of boiling water. Is it possible? I exclaimed. Look. The panels opened, and I saw the sea entirely white all round. A sulfurous smoke was curling amid the waves, 
which boiled like water in a copper. I placed my hand on one of the panes of glass, but the heat was so great that I quickly took it off again. Where are we? I asked. Near the island of Santorin, sir, replied the captain. I wished to give you a sight of the curious spectacle of a submarine eruption. I thought, said I, that the formation of these new islands was ended. Nothing is ever ended in the volcanic parts of the sea, replied Captain Nemo. And the globe is always being worked by subterranean fires. Already, in the nineteenth year of our era, according to the Cassiodorus and Pliny, a new island, Sia, the Divine, appeared in the very place where these islets have recently been formed. Then they sank under the waves to rise again in the year 69, when they again subsided. Since that time to our days, the Plutonian work has been suspended. But on the 3rd of February, 1866, a new island, which they named George Island, emerged from the midst of the sulfurous vapor near Nia Kameni and settled again the sixth of the same month. Seven days after, the 13th of February, the island of Afresa appeared, leaving between Nia Kameni and itself a canal ten yards broad. I was in these seas when the phenomenon occurred, and I was able, therefore, to observe all the different phases the island of Afresa, of round form, measured 300 feet in diameter and 30 feet in height. It was composed of black and vitreous lava, mixed with fragments of feldspar. And lastly, on the 10th of March, a smaller island, called Reka, showed itself near near Kameni. And since then, these three have joined together, forming but one and the same island. And the canal in which we are at this moment, I asked. Here it is, replied the captain, showing me a map of the archipelago. You see, I have marked the new islands. I returned to the glass. The Nautilus was no longer moving. The heat was becoming unbearable. The sea, which till now had been white, was red, owing to the presence of salts of iron. In spite of the ships being hermetically sealed, an insupportable smell of sulfur filled the saloon and the brilliancy of the electricity was entirely extinguished by bright scarlet flames.
I was in a bath. I was choking. I was broiled. We can remain no longer in this boiling water, I said to the captain. It would not be prudent, replied the impassive Captain Nemo. An order was given. The Nautilus tacked about and left the furnace it could not brave with impunity. A quarter of an hour after, we were breathing fresh air on the surface. The thought struck me that if Ned Land had chosen this part of the sea for our flight, we should never have come alive out of this sea of fire. The next day, the 16th of February, we left the basin which, between Rhodes and Alexandria, is reckoned about 1,500 fathoms in depth, and the Nautilus, passing some distance from Kergo, quitted the Grecian archipelago after having doubled Cape Matapan. Chapter 2 